All right, so as you get to Isaiah 65, I, I want to just kind of start this way before we get into the text. Um, there, there's a real common misconception in our culture, uh, in our world, about who God is, um, what he's like. And, and if you ask a typical person what they think of God, um, if they believe in a God, there's usually one of two extremes that you're going to find that are not really aligned at all with the Bible um, and what God says about himself in the scriptures. But you're either going to have a cranky old man judgmental kind of view of God. Like he's just this old dude that's mad about all the kids, you know, walking on his grass or whatever and just doesn't want to deal with us, doesn't want to put up with us, doesn't really like us, begrudgingly shows up from time to time to, to get us to be quiet or whatever. Like that's, that's a view. That's a view that's very common. You, you see it portrayed that way all the time in, in the, the media or movies or whatever. It's just kind of a, it's a comedic view, but it's, it's one that a lot of people have in their mind of just this, that God's just old, he's mad, he's, he's not a happy God, he doesn't really like people, he just kind of puts up with us. Um, that's one view. The other view is, of course, the other extreme of that, which would be um, that God just doesn't really care what we do. He's, he's all good with whatever, right? Like there's no, there's no consequences for, for things that we do that are outside of his plan. He doesn't really have a plan. He just wants us to live and, and do our thing. And, and so on one hand, you have an extraordinarily judgmental God. On the other hand, you have a non-judgmental God and the, the truth is that God is both gracious and just, that he's both a God of love and a God of justice. And what we see in the scriptures is uh, that God time and time again uh, being portrayed. Now, here, here's the thing though. I, I don't know very, I've been in the church, the church world my, my whole life. Um, and, and I have always been more tempted to lean towards a God that is angry and doesn't really want to put up with us, doesn't really like us. That's always been kind of more of the, the angle that I've, that I've been brought, brought, not brought up with in like an intentional way, but just sort of how I've uh, absorbed things. And what's amazing is as you read Isaiah 65, we get a picture of God that is so unlike that. That God is actually not just willing to save us, but that he's actually eager to save us. And, and I, don't, I don't know that I've ever really uh, seen God clearly in that light, right? Where we, we tend to see God as, well, you know, he did save us because he sent Jesus, but that's just because we're a bunch of screw-ups and he just doesn't really, he's got to deal with it. But but what Isaiah 65 shows us is a God who's not just willing to send his son into the world, but it was actually eager and, and just like going, going all the way in to save us and to help us. And this passage in front of us is actually going to show us four ways that God displays his, his total love for his people. Like, love that we don't deserve, that we couldn't earn. And, and he's going to show us four ways that God does this, displays this for us. So as we get into it, we're going to look at just, um, this, just, just this chapter. We might bounce a little bit into the New Testament to kind of round some things out, but um, mainly here. And 
let's, let's start in verse 1. We'll, we'll throw that up on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. Um, verse 1, I think, sets the whole stage for this chapter. Look at what it says. This is God speaking here. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. This is an amazing verse because it it completely demolishes this idea that God is just this standoffish, uninterested, uh, doesn't have really any love for people, just sort of tolerates us. That this whole notion is unbiblical because God says here that he's ready to be sought, to be found by people who don't even want him. Like, God loves his people far more than we love him. And in fact, the Christian message is not about how much we love Jesus. Because if the, if the Christian message was about how much we love Jesus or how much we love God or how devoted we are to God, then our, our whole foundation is going to be on, on rocky, on, on, on really unstable ground because we're so fickle and we're so inconsistent and we don't love God the way we ought to love him. Almost ever. In, in a few shining moments of our life, we might say we do, but, but most of the time we're not there. And so our foundation is not on our love for God, but on his love for us. It has to be that way if we're going to have any hope at all in our, in our lives, that God's unshaking love, unchanging love, steadfast love is on his people and in fact is directed towards people who don't even want God in their life. Th- this is an amazing thing. Because it's telling us that God is eager to save you when you're not even eager to be saved. And that God is extending his offer of grace to you even when you're not reaching out for it. He actually does all of this regardless of our feelings towards him in the moment. And in fact, it's, it's a verse that's quoted in the New Testament and I think it's always helpful when we see the New Testament writers quoting the Old Testament because it gives us clarity on what we we need to see in this. And Paul uses this text in Romans chapter 10, verse 20. And uh, he quotes it directly there. But in the context of Romans chapter 10 and, and chapter 11, but really chapter 10 and 11 deal with this, this crazy thing that was happening. And, and that the people of the Old Testament, we, you probably know, were uh, of the Jewish people. And Jesus came into the world as a Jewish man and lived uh, a life as a Jewish guy and died for Israel's sins. But after he dies and rises again, raises again from the dead, he's, he's uh, largely rejected by his own people. He was rejected by his own people in his life and even, even after his resurrection. And what was happening was that 
the, the gospel was moving forth into the world and Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were becoming Christians in droves. Like the church was exploding among people who were not of the Jewish faith. Which is interesting and kind of bizarre to think because the Jewish people had the foundation. They had the context. They understood what all this was supposed to be and they didn't, not every individual person, right? But as a whole, they didn't receive Christ as their Messiah. Some individuals did, certainly, but not all of them, and most of them didn't. And then you have all these non-Jewish people coming to faith, and Paul is, is wondering about this as he's writing to the Romans. And he's going, how, how is this possible? How is it that all of these Gentile people, he's writing to a group of Gentiles, right? The Romans were not Jewish. There were probably a few Jewish people that lived in the city, but not Mostly they were not Jewish people. And here you have this whole church in Rome that he's writing a letter to and he's going, you guys are amazing to me because you're coming to faith in Jesus. And he quotes this verse to talk about why that's happening. That God would actually come and reach down into a world to a nation that was not called by his name. Israel was a nation that was called by his name. Uh, but the nations of the world were not, as uh, at least in the initial time with Abraham and all those other Old Testament people. And here Jesus comes, he dies on the cross, he rise, ra- is raised again from the dead, and then now all these people who are not Jewish are coming to faith in Christ. And Paul is just going, look at this amazing grace that God extends to his people. Look at how gracious God is. To, to be eager to save people who were not even looking for him. Th- these were not people that knew anything about him, but when they heard the message, they received it. And, and that's just an incredible thing. And that's, it's still true today. It's still true, because I'm going to guess most of us in this room are not Jewish, and we're here. We're Christians. We believe in Jesus. At least many of us do, right? And so we have this this legacy of God caring for and loving and pursuing us even when we weren't looking to be saved, even when we weren't eager to be saved, even when we weren't asking for his help, he extends it to us. He is this amazing God who comes into our world and offers to us the hope of eternal life. And this is what John in, in his gospel, John chapter one, he, he talks a little bit about this. I'll just quickly read verse 14. And it says that the word, the word is in this, in this passage is talking about Jesus. So just another kind of nickname or whatever for Jesus. But it says the word became flesh. In other words, he became a human being and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is is explained here as this God who comes into our world, leaves heaven, enters into earth as a human being, and lives with his people. This is the initiating grace of God for us. And that's the first thing that we see in this passage. The first way that the love of God is on display in in Isaiah 65, is that God initiates, he begins a relationship with people who weren't looking for him. He starts this. He begins it. He's he's the one that says, I want to save you. He does that 
long before we ever say, I want to be saved. And that's great news. Because if it was left up to us, completely on our own, we would never get there. We would never come to a point where we say, you know what, I need someone to save me. But but when Jesus initiates it, when he starts that relationship and goes, I'm going to save you, then our hearts are are just changed and opened up to to who he is. And so he, in coming down as a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, God shows us the, the ultimate display of initiating love that he would come to a people who were not looking for him. And, and this is an amazing grace that he gives to us. So number one, we see the initiating love of God in this text, that he comes to save people who were not even interested in being saved. That's, that's grace. Because what our hearts most desperately need is to be saved. We don't. We, we might think, and uh, we might be tempted to think that that's an intrusion on our, on our rights and our privacy or whatever, right? We might think, well, how, what right does God have, to to invade my life? And we can argue that, but here's the thing: if He didn't invade our lives, then we would never have hope. We would never be redeemed. We would never be made into what we were made, meant to be. So I'm grateful that God is an intrusive God. I'm grateful for that. Because if he wasn't, if he was standoffish, just one just sat back and waited for us, man, we would we'd be stuck. We'd be stuck in a in a bad spot. God doesn't leave us there. He initiates a relationship with us. Let's keep going though. Let's look at verse two through seven. Now this one in the context, um, is, is directed at uh, the, this rebellious nation called Israel. Okay, so that's the context of the passage. Um, the whole passage is really directed at this rebellious nation called Israel, who were supposed to have a relationship with God, but had really forsaken him. Um, and so God is going to address them directly, but... Uh, here's the thing, there, even though it's directed at them historically, it has implications for us and we need to hear the implications, okay? So, so let's read it and we'll, we'll look at what it has to say and we'll, we'll, make some, uh, we'll make some comments about it in a minute. God is still speaking here and he says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs, who spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near to me, for I am too holy for you. These are smoke in my nostrils a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains, insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. All right, so 
again, he's talking about rebellious Israel, right? The, the people who were under a, a covenant with God, had this relationship with God, and they have broken that relationship time and time again. They've been walking in ways that are not good. They're, they're deliberately breaking God's laws. They're doing all the things that they're not supposed to do. And he gives a good list of those things. Um, he talks about how they're sacrificing in gardens and on bricks. They weren't supposed to do that. They were supposed to sacrifice in the temple, not just wherever they wanted. They were sitting in tombs. I don't know why, whatever they were. They weren't supposed to be doing that because there's dead bodies there and that makes them unclean. They're eating pig's flesh. Now, by God's grace, we can. They couldn't. But God, the New Testament says, go for it, do, do that. But at this point in history, they couldn't do that. And so here they're doing that. And then they, the, verse five confuses me. I'll just be honest. It says, he quotes them and says, keep to yourself, do not come near me for I am too holy for you. Now I'm wondering, are they talking to God there? Is that who they're, because that seems to be what he's saying, right? There's no one else in this context. So are they saying to God, hey, just stay where you, you are. We don't really want you here. We're too good for you. That's crazy and terrible right? So, so, they, so God's saying they're doing all these things. Their pride is crazy. They're out of control. But, but look back at verse 2, because here's where the grace is. It says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. Even in the midst of their rebellion, their sinfulness, their, their just downright wickedness. Jesus is showing his patience in holding out grace to them nonetheless. He says, I hold out my hands to them all the day to a rebellious people. God is showing his love for sinners because he's patient with us. And while these obviously are directed at a particular people at a particular time in history, there is implications here for us. We, we, we need to recognize that we're also sinners and are prone to wander from God. We are prone towards sinfulness. We do these things not in the same way they did, but we, we do the same types of things, the same motivation. We often deliberately make choices that we know God is not honored by. We deliberately do things that we know will hurt him. We, we do them because we're sinful. We have a heart that's not perfect in, in how it should be. And so here we are, and what we deserve from God in all of that, what we deserve is his anger, his judgment, his, his wrath. We deserve that. But instead, what we get is, is Jesus Christ holding out his hands, his nail-scarred hands towards sinners and saying, I have grace for you. You're a fool. You're, you're dumb, but I have grace for you. God is saying that to us. He's telling us that. He's eager to extend his kindness to us. In fact, 
as we trust in Jesus, we don't stop being sinners uh, in, a, in a practical way, but we stop being held, uh, having our sins held against us because Christ has removed the, the judgment of our sins, which we're going to look at in a, in a minute here. We're going to see this. But, but when we come to Christ as believers in Jesus, what we get is a throne of grace. In Hebrews chapter 4, we see the throne of grace. Jesus sits on this throne. He's not sitting on a throne of judgment towards us if we've trusted Jesus. Those who reject Jesus will have to deal with a throne of judgment. Those who believe in Jesus, trust in him, take his offer of grace and and receive it for ourselves. We don't approach God in judgment. We we approach him in grace. That he he has nothing but kindness to give to us. Even in our foolishness, even in our sinfulness, he extends his welcoming arms back to us. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, here's the thing. There's a reason why he can do that, okay? And that's where the text is going to go. Because like I said, God is neither this cranky old man sitting on his front porch yelling at people, and he's also not this shrugs, just who cares what you do, just have fun with your life. He's not that either. There is a reason why God can be gracious towards sinners, And it's because he has dealt with our sin at the cross. The reason we can receive the arms of grace from God is because Jesus took upon himself the judgment of God. God is both loving and just. He he has to be. To be a good God, he has to be. If he was all just and no love, he would be a terror to, to live in this world. We'd just be dodging lightning constantly because he's just ticked at us all the time. That'd be horrifying. But if he's not a God of justice at all, then, then guess what? All the horrible things that have happened to us are just going to go undone or undealt with. And just, he's just going to shrug and go, well, stinks to be you. Sorry. And that's not, that's not what we want either. We need both. And so here is what's amazing. As we see this judgment, but, but the gospel tells us that the judgment that God has for sin, he takes himself. Now let's, let's read this text, okay? Let's read 8 through 16. So it's a decent chunk here. But we're going to look at these verses, and I hope as we look at them, um, you're going to see, uh, you're going to see a lot of harsh words, a lot of judgment, a lot of anger. But we got to read it through the right lens. We got to read through the framework of the gospel. If we don't, the Old Testament can be confusing. Okay, just we've got to read this through Jesus, and we will, and we'll, and I'll show you how we do that after we get there. But look, let's look at verse eight. It says, "Thus says the Lord." As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there's a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. So there's an analogy about pulling up some, some grapes from the vineyard that you would be stomping into wine. But you look, at that, you look at that bunch of grapes, that cluster of grapes, and you go, there's some really disgusting rotten grapes on this thing. 
And generally what you would do is if the, if the majority of the grapes were bad, you just toss it and go, ah, let's go to the next cluster here and hope those are a little bit better. But what, what God is saying is, yeah, there's some bad grapes here. And there's also some grapes that can be saved. And I'm going to actually take the time to save the ones that, can, that, that need to be saved. So he says he's not going to destroy them all. Verse 9, he says, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it. My servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out in pain of heart, and you shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Now, this, this is the part of the passage that starts to get really serious, right? And um, the first, you know, eight verses or seven verses or so are have some hope in them, right? And this sounds kind of like, oh, this is the God that I think of, right? This kind of angry, cranky God who just wants to hurt people or whatever. But here, here's the thing. What we're seeing in this passage is a picture of, of, of heaven and hell. I mean, really, that's, that's what it boils down to. It's heaven and hell. And it's, he, he goes through this list of his servants will eat, you will be hungry, drink thirsty, right? Rejoice, put to shame, etc. It just goes on and on. Right? He's, he's talking about the, the difference between trusting Jesus and experiencing the joy that he has for those who trust in him, and those who reject Jesus and experience the, hard, the hardship and suffering. So how do we understand this text? Uh, if we read it and we go, okay, verse 13 through uh, 14 really are like, that's kind of where he's comparing and contrasting. And he says, here's the, the servants are going to get this really good thing. And you, he's talking to rebellious Israel, you are going to get this really bad thing. So how do we make sure that we're one of the servants and not one of the yous, right? How, how, do we, how do we get there? Well, here's the message. The message of Isaiah is that God saves sinners, right? We've, that's kind of what we've tagged this whole series. God saves sinners, but here's the key. God saves sinners through Jesus. We got to get that. We got to get that in our heads, God does save sinners, but he does so through Jesus. And so if we don't come to God through Jesus, we don't get to come to him at all. 
And, and this, these verses are talking about the contrast between people who, who think they can come to God by their own righteousness or their own goodness or their own lives or somehow that they can figure it out for themselves. I think that's what they're getting at when they say to him back in verse 6, um, you, you know, you can just kind of, or verse 5, keep to yourself. Uh, you know, you can stay over there, God. I don't, I'm too holy for you. I, I'm, I'm just fine on my own. I'm even better than you. That mentality does not lead to life. That mentality leads to death. And that's, a, that's because the only people who come to Jesus are people who know they have nothing else to stand on. And so if we receive the gift of Christ, we will receive the good that he has. If we reject the offer of grace from Jesus, we will receive we will receive hell. And there's, there's really no other way to say it. And here's the thing. I mean, we don't, we don't like to talk about hell. No one does. Well, some people do, and they're, they're not fun to be around. Um, most people don't like to talk about hell, okay? It's not comfortable. It's very controversial. It makes us nervous. I get that. Um, but here's the thing. God is showing us his kindness in giving us this doctrine, this truth, because he says he's showing us what the outcome of our rejection will be. He's not letting us just walk through life blindly thinking that everything's going to be okay. He actually shows us what is to come. <clears throat> and, and I know, and here's the thing, <clears throat> we, we think that the offer, or we think that the doctrine of hell is, is, is harsh because why would God send a nice person to hell, right? Why would God send someone nice who just doesn't believe in Jesus to, to eternal suffering? Why would he do that if he was a nice God? We have those objections. We hear that a lot. Um, but here's the thing. The Bible doesn't tell us that there are nice people and bad people. The Bible tells us that there are only bad people. And some of those people are saved by Jesus because they come to him. He, the Bible actually tells us that every one of us deserves to go to hell. I do. I do. I'm not saying that about you and not saying it about me. I deserve hell. I mean, it's an amazing thing to wake up and go, man, I should be in hell right now, and I'm not. That's great. Like, let's be thankful for that, right? We deserve that. But here's what also the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us that Jesus went to hell for us. It tells us that that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, that's exactly what happened. And so here's the truth. Every sin and every sinner goes to hell in one of two ways. Either we go personally or we go uh, substitutionally. Meaning we either go in our own experience throughout eternity or we go in Christ as he suffered for us on the cross. And that's a better deal, by the way, right? Like, let Jesus go to hell so that you don't have to. It isn't, I mean, that's like a no-brainer. That, to me, at least. I mean, I, I just think, like, this is the offer that God gives to us. He actually goes through these things. He was hungry and thirsty and was put to shame and cried out for pain of heart and for the breaking of spirit. Jesus dealt with all of these things as he died on the cross. He 
received upon himself not just the physical sufferings of being tortured and killed on a cross, but he also suffered the spiritual agonies of being separated from God in that moment as as he received all of the sins of each person in the world and God disowned him in that moment and put him to shame and rejected his own son for that moment. That is a horrific thing that Jesus endured and he did it for you so that you never would have to experience it. This is what the gospel is about, that we deserve judgment, but we don't get it because Jesus took it for us. Giving ourselves to Jesus And having him suffer hell for our sins is what God wants you to do. It's what he wants you to do. This is why the Bible says that God desires that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's saying he wants every human heart to respond to this invitation of grace and to come to him and let Jesus suffer hell for them so that you don't have to. And, and here, we, here we have to just say this. As we do come to Jesus, as we do that, we are given a promise of a new and beautiful life. And it's described in the next section of this passage. This passage doesn't end on a, on a sad note. It ends on a glorious note. A note that says, if you come to Jesus, this is what is ahead of you. This is what you have to look forward to. You have a home in Christ forever and we will one day live in it personally and eternally live in it. And look at verse 17 through the end of the chapter. This is where we get this picture of of a future hope. So just to recap before we get there here, we've said there are four ways God is going to show us his eagerness to save. The first is that he initiates that relationship with us. Second is that he's patient with us as we struggle with sin. And third is that he suffers hell for us, even though we deserve to suffer ourselves. Now, fourthly, is that Jesus creates a new world for his people. He's creating a new world for us. And we'll see it someday. It's not here yet, but it will be. So, 17. For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Let's let's stop just for a second here and think about the end of verse 17. It says that the former things, what is that? That's basically everything we're living in now and everything we've lived in and everything we will live in until we are in the presence of Jesus in this, in this new and glorious home. It says those things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Think about this, this for a moment. Every horrible thing you've experienced in your life And every horrible thing that you know others have experienced in their lives, we won't even remember them. They won't even be like a faint memory 
They won't come to mind. We have nothing but good to look forward to. And he says, we will be glad and rejoice forever. Verse 19, he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, the, in, the, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who, die, who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, it's not speaking literally that you only live to a hundred and then die. It's using that that phrase a hundred years to just describe a, just a total length of time. You're going to have eternity here. And so it's just using symbolic language there. It says that they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Again, he's speaking here like everything that's broken in the world is going to be healed. This lamb that would normally be eaten by the wolf is hanging with the wolf. He's, they're, they're, they're friends. That doesn't happen in our world now, right? It's, it's one of those, it's just a, it's a word picture for us to see this. And it says, the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in, my, in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So again, here we have this amazing picture that God is not just going to leave us here on our own to fend for ourselves, and then we just die and disappear into oblivion. No, we have an eternity in front of us. And if we trust in Jesus and let him take our hell for us, we will never experience bad things ever again. We will only have hope and a future. We will only have good things. That is the hope of the Christian life. Now, we could write this off as just you know, fairy tales. Don't, you know, hey, you're just, it's wishful thinking. What? You know, I'm, okay. And people have to get to a point where they, they recognize that what God says is, is true. But God tells us that there is a glorious future for us. I don't think it's a fairy tale. And I don't think most of you do either. It's, it's the hope we have that, that we can have Jesus here and now but that we'll have him in perfection someday is a glorious thing. And it's a grace from God. It's undeserved. We don't deserve a new world. We don't deserve to have our our future healed. We don't deserve any of it. But we have a God who extends nothing but good to us if we've trusted in Jesus. So I hope you have. I hope you will. I hope that that we... um, that you've experienced the goodness of God in, in all these things for you. We got to recognize that none of this is possible if it was not for the death of Christ and his resurrection. That Jesus went to the cross 
to suffer the judgment of sin is what gives him the, the, the opportunity to extend a relationship to you today. Have you th- given your sins to Jesus to pay for at the cross? Have you given your sins to him that you might be healed and, and, and have your heart restored to what it ought to be? If you have, today's a day to rejoice in, in who God is and what he's done for you. And to recognize that you still have work, so do I. We gotta, we gotta keep, keep growing, right? There's always things to bring to the Lord Jesus. There's always more awareness of our sin. And some of us in this room maybe haven't even done the first step of turning our sins to Jesus. You can do that today. You can do that by just in your own heart asking him to extend the grace he has for you to you by confessing your need for him, by admitting your sins, by saying, I am a sinner and I need Jesus to save me. And if you tell him that with earnestness and sincerity of heart, he will come and he will help you. He will save you. He will give his spirit to you that you might live and walk with him. And I hope you do that today. And so with those things in front of us, let me pray for you, pray for me as well. And then we'll, we'll sing a few songs together and partake of the Lord's table. And, um, and give our tithes and offerings if you've come with those. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace to us today. We, we are just uh, enthralled by it. We're amazed by it. We're grateful for how you've shown us your goodness to us in, in this passage. And I just pray that this, the things you've said to us would be true in our hearts, that we would hear it and believe it and Respond to it as you would have us respond, Father. We pray, Lord, as we go into a season of singing and remembering you at the table, that our hearts would be drawn freshly to you in in your beauty and kindness to us. And we pray that we would respond to you with, with sincere hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.